Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona Kay, and I was married for 30 years, in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced since 2018, and together we have an amazing adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And my hope is that the information shared in this podcast will help you understand the strengths, differences, and challenges in your neurodiverse relationship as you move forward in life. Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm so excited again to have another conversation with my co-host, Greg Fuqua. And Greg, I'd love if you could take a few seconds to introduce yourself and share a little bit about yourself and your journey. So the audience who is new can can learn a little bit about you. Absolutely. Yeah. So my name's Greg Fuqua. I'm a, a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Iowa. Um, I'm an uh, autism clinical specialist. I'm also a level two trained neurodiverse couples counselor. Um, I identify as being on the spectrum. My wife is ADHD. We've been in a neurodiverse relationship for 30, maybe five years. I need to probably check my math there, but it's been a long time. It's also been um, a great journey. Um, it's definitely, um, been a lot of learning and it's been able to really apply what I've learned about myself, what I've learned about her to um, couples and to understanding neurodivergence and neurodiversity. And so as usual, I'm really excited to be here to talk on this topic with you. Yeah, it's going to be great. And so for the listeners, I wanted to let you know that Greg and I are going to be doing quite a few episodes together. And this is our second episode together for season seven. And today we're going to talk about cultivating positive feelings, affection, appreciation, and commitment in a neurodiverse relationship. And I know a lot of the listeners and folks who come to the support groups that I facilitate or co-facilitate are really struggling. And I know when you're constantly focusing on the challenges or the differences that you have, or, you know, your partner or you have been late identified or late diagnosed, there is a lot of, you know, unintentional hurt and pain that you both have gone through. So we really want to focus this on some positive things um, so that folks that are really trying to make their relationships work and be healthy themselves and in partnership can hopefully take away some things that they can start doing um, almost immediately. So Greg, I'm going to let you kick this one off because you have so many great things to share and I'll add my thoughts as we continue talking. Yeah, I really appreciate that intro because I think you're absolutely right that it's very easy to get perseverating and focused on everything that's wrong in your relationship, right? But we also want a path forward to what can make it right, what can make it more fulfilling, and how can both partners get uh, feel better about uh, their relationship. And I think um, one of the starting points that we have to begin with is really knowing your partner. And um, a really wonderful author and expert on relationships, Stan Tacton, has a wonderful way of talking about this. And, and he says that you need to know your partner's owner's manual. Mm -hmm. And 
it's not that you own your partner, right? <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> you need to know how they were made. So what their history was, what their trauma, what are their triggers, what they need for maintenance and repair, meaning what works for them in terms of interaction. I think you need to know the neurotype to some degree and their personality. Um, you, you need to have, you know, you need to have a, also probably some knowledge around their love languages and deficits and strengths, all that stuff. And that's got to be the starting point, because if you don't have that, you know, you don't know what you're working with, and that's when you're going to get lost in the relationship. And that's when interactions can get dicey and, um, and problematic when you're sort of missing each other, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that I love the idea of an owner's manual as long as you don't take it literally, right? That's right. <laughs> no one owns each other. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And um, the love languages for those folks that aren't familiar with them, um, I think the whole world knows about them now. Gary Chapman wrote a book many, many years ago about the five love languages, but mm. now. You know, we know that a lot of neurodivergent folks may have different love languages that, um, you know, we can talk about some of those, but mm -hmm. they are, I think, similar or somewhat like Gary Chapman's love language. Like, you know, I know I've heard folks talk about, you know, parallel play, which is oftentimes used for children, but it mm -hmm. for adults, right? It may mean that you're in the same room, you're in the same house, you're on the same couch, and you may not be talking, but that feels really wonderful, maybe for your partner. And you may need something more. So being able to explain that or your partner really wants to talk about their deep interest or their pas passions and they can talk about it for a really long time, but they may not be interested in having an ongoing conversation after they're finished sharing. So how can you make time for that ongoing conversation about things that are important to both of you? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think there are two big words that can sort of frame some of these discussions that do revolve around reciprocity mm -hmm. and mutuality. And those aren't always perfectly even or stylistically the same. Um, but I think those principles need to guide a lot of how we think about um, cultivating more positivity and meeting each other's needs as partners, as neurodiverse partners. Yeah, I totally agree. So, you know, let's just take the affection piece and we're going to talk mm -hmm. um, more on another episode about sexuality and sex and, and physical intimacy. But if one partner really enjoys hugs and um, the other partner isn't as tactile, mm -hmm. but they know it's important to their partner to be hugged every day, you know, what are things that you can do, whether it's set an alarm, you know, when your partner walks through the door, when they come home from work, if that's really when they want to have that physical contact, how right. can you make sure that you're able to give that to them? And if one of you prefers a different type of affection, and maybe it's, you know, more compliments, you know, it's words mm -hmm. of affirmation, you know, yeah. and that is your type of affection. How can you make sure that every day, and I, I really think that the everyday thing, Greg, is really important, something I didn't do in my marriage, yeah. um, you know, finding time to do those things um, and attuning with your partner and understanding what they need and not giving what you need, but what they need can be really, mm -hmm. really valuable, right? Yeah, I think you know, 
relationships require maintenance, you know, and if you don't, it's very easy for, for, you know, for the inertia to fall into older dynamics, you know, so there does have to be efforts and orientations toward each other that are regularly done or, you know, um, worked on. And I, I think that's like really important as it relates to this idea of reciprocity, which is there needs to be at least small gestures made um, to address each other's needs and wants. You know, um, now a lot of times there's going to be need, need to be negotiation around that. And, and you're sort of outlining that when you're talking about figuring out um, how to find the right times or to find the right mood or to find the right energy in order to get there, right? And so this idea of maybe preparation um, is good for the um, autistic experience. Um, if I am ambushed by my wife <laughs> with yeah, a yeah. hug or a kiss and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ready for it, then I am going to like brace myself and kind of shrink up and it, it doesn't feel good to her. Right. But if she could give me a warning or if this can, can happen at a certain time where I can kind of get myself there, um, that works a whole lot better. Right. So um, sometimes there has to be some negotiation between you two to help you get there. But if you're able to make those small gestures, um, it be, there becomes much more of a culture of appreciation. And usually there's like that reciprocity happens, meaning that you usually are going to get something back in terms of um, getting your meets net met or um, them also um, making a small gesture toward what you really need too at times yeah I think that one of the things that I hear often from couples is that when they get rejected by their partner um, it feels you know they take it personally and yeah. so having those discussions about how you can make mm -hmm. sure that there's mutual mutual I can't say the word mutuality and that you're both getting your needs met and you understand that one of you may need something on a regular basis, but the other doesn't. Yeah. And if it's only, if it's something you can only get in your most intimate relationship with your romantic partner, like hugs and kisses or, you know, right. physical intimacy, how do you have that conversation or can you have that conversation together yeah. or do you need a third party to help with that? You know, one of the reasons that I created the neurodiversal of conversation cards in the workbook was because over the years I realized there were so many questions. My ex and I had never asked each other and we had just kind of taken right. things for granted right. and it created a lot of conflict and a lot of misunderstanding. So, yeah, mm -hmm. having that conversation around affection, what you each need and want, and then how you can kind of fill each other's love tank, which is what uh, Gary Chapman talks about. And I think the Gottmans talk about that, too. Yep. And that comes from appreciating each other. So how does your partner like to be appreciated? You know, mm -hmm. if their love language is acts of service, which is one of the five, yeah. and that means that they like when you get their cup of coffee for them in the morning, or, you know, you um, fill the, the gas tank of the car or whatever. If you don't do those things, because that's not how you want to be appreciated and how you experience love, then their love tank may be 
empty, you know, or yeah. below zero, if that's even possible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And when, yeah, your tank is empty, you know, it's very easy to have raw and hurtful experiences because there's no buffer there. You know, um, you do need to build up the good. And like you said, I think talking about process, talking about what we need, what it needs to look like, um, what happens to you in these moments, you know, um, so talking about process and processes, how did our communication go? You know, we talked about this last episode, which is sort of debriefing, reviewing, you know, reflecting on experience. Um, this is a good thing to happen in the moment. Sometimes it's hard because sometimes emotions get high. Um, but I really love my couples that will talk about process, talk about what happened, you know, um, so you can get on each other's um, side. You know, I think. One of the difficult things from an autistic point of view is that um, being touchy-feely, being vulnerable, being romantic can feel too much. Mm. And um, a lot of what my um, neurodivergent sides of my couples tell me, you know, is that um, I can't verbalize emotion. It feels hard or even yucky or fake or inadequate. And, um, and I, and I think that that vulnerability and the intensity of emotion that a lot of autistics feel around alexithymia and love in particular, because there's a big emotion, right. Um, right. creates some short circuiting in our system and sometimes prevents us from being as mutual or as giving or, meeting the expectations of or the or the expected norms in the relationship which from a more neurotypical perspective look more um emotional and vulnerable and close and intimate physically and verbally and i think that's really important to understand that from the autistic perspective and and i've gone through this myself which is trying to push into that in small ways, again, I think reinforce those small gestures and create reciprocity. It's possible to get there, but sometimes it does take some practice and it does take a, a different shift in, in dynamic um, and, and also working together as a couple. Yeah. And I think that is going to be so important for folks to hear, because I know, you know, in, in past relationships after my divorce, I dated a lot of um, autistic men and didn't realize that they felt that way. <laughs> and you explained that so perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I know when um, they had a bad day and I would go in for a hug or to hold hands or to snuggle, that was the last thing they wanted. <laughs> You know, and I felt rejected, you know, and so yeah. um, for those that are not autistic to hear that that's not the case and to actually have a conversation with your partner about what they need when they've had a bad day, when they come through the door so that you can talk about that. So you're not you're not missing each other or or getting each other um, angry or overstimulated or judging each other, or, you know, right. looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, you know, he or she or they are not attracted to me anymore. Yep. And th that's probably not the case. That's right. And, and, and again, sometimes when 
um, you know, the neurodivergent side of the couple is having a bad day. Our, our default, and this is a stereotype, but our defaults is are to internalize or actually to hold things in and to try to sort of power through them internally, which gives us very little space or capacity for interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, a lot of times we regulate better by at least giving ourselves some kind of space and alone time. And a lot of more neurotypical um, preferences are to regulate through that social interaction, you know, um, through the venting process or through the connecting process. And, but I, I think, you know, autistics can push into this better, you know, it may be that they need a little bit time to recognize where they're at first and what they need for themselves to create enough space to then um, seek out their partner for support. And, I think a lot of um, the emotional difficulties, both with anxiety and depression that we see in the autistic experience is driven by really hard internalization, a holding in of energy and tension mm -hmm. and frustration and the inability to find outlets of expression of it or the inability to sort of feel like I fit in enough um, or I'm safe enough to um, to be able to express these things um, that sometimes also get pretty intense, you know, and I have a, like a really good example of that. Yeah. Work, I'd love to hear it. Working with a neurodiverse couple. Um, the, the guy is, is, is on a, on the spectrum. He's quiet, but he's super smart. He's super caring and kind, you know, and I was talking to the wife. I'm saying, so, you know, how's he working on all of that stuff he brings home from work? She says, well, you know, I can tell he kind of has more ownership of it because he can, if he does, you know, if I am trying to get connected to him and he is sort of resisting that, you know, he can more often say, you know, I can't, I don't need that right now, or I can't do that right now, or I've had a bad day. I mean, sometimes it's very simple and short stuff. Sometimes it doesn't feel that great, but um, he... And then he also willing to much more apologize and own when he is, when he sort of externalizes that sometimes frustration onto her. And so I turn to him and I say, hey, buddy, um, tell me what's going on at work. And he is so smart. He can see everything that's going on on his job site. He knows the logistics, the patterns. He knows what needs to happen where. And of course, none of that happens on his, <laughs> in his job site. So he is seeing that all through the day and it's piling up in him, right? Sure. And I say, buddy, start telling, you know, tell me what's, tell me everything that's gone on your job site this week. And so he's like, okay. And then he starts talking about, it. you can see him getting worked up, right? You can see mm -hmm. the intensity, all that has been built up in him over the week. And he just starts swearing. <laughs> he's mm -hmm. like, this is what, this is going on, this is going on, this is going on. And I'm like, and then he starts to sort of calm down. And I'm like, buddy, I love this part. It is so smart. It sees so much. It knows exactly what's going on. And it has nowhere to express. Mm. It has nowhere inside of you to be validated, to be firm, to be given space. 
And you can see him after I say, I love this part. He, his smile comes on his face. He doesn't smile that much. And his whole body moves down. And I'm like, did you just feel that? And he's like, yeah. Mm. And I said, you can do that with your wife. And I think that's a, a good example of, you know, again, it's hard because we love our partners. A lot of times we want to protect our partners. And again, I think a lot of times that autistic default is to internalize, which I don't think really works. There's healthy ways of doing that too, but um, you've got somebody here. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a partner who wants to hear what you're feeling inside. You've got mm -hmm. a partner who wants to um, appreciate the challenges that you're having at work or in life or in the relationship. And I know that requires vulnerability. Yep. And I know that a lot of um, autistic folks in the support groups that I facilitate and co-facilitate talk about shame. No, yeah. because right they've been shamed for having their yeah. intense feelings or yeah. sharing their intense feelings or their opinions and so it feels scary not only vulnerable but really scary to be that open with your partner but i love that greg and hopefully that's going to resonate for some folks because when you're a team and you're working to cultivate you know that those positive feelings and appreciation and commitment for each other sharing like that can be a major trust builder. Yeah, it, it really can. I really appreciate you bringing up the idea of shame because so many neurodivergents have had relational trauma, mm -hmm. you know, have been told they're too much, have been shamed for being overly emotional or overly sensitive um, or, you know, for getting angry, you know, and we do need, a full range uh, um, of experiences um, and space for our emotions. Um, and so that's, that's really important. I think that goes back to that same idea of knowing your partner's owner's manual, right? If I know their history as it relates to relational trauma, I know when shame comes up, I know what's hard. I can help facilitate connection, knowing maybe what part I'm talking to now or um, what the triggers are or what they need and what does feel right and what does feel safe for them. And again, talking about process um, can also open that up more. I want to jump to one of the things I often tell my um, couples that um, is really kind of dumb and simple, <laughs> but, it's, okay. but it, it's like a revelation to a lot of my couples and particularly the couples that have been in relationship for a long time. And you talk about this built up, built up of resentment and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I say, if it's positive and it's about your partner and it pops in your head, say it, mm, love that. say it. And what I started noticing when I was trying to orientate to my wife more was a resistance again to that vulnerability to that again those what you know I, I guess those more intense emotions of of love and and um and so you know i'd say honey you look really good today 
because it popped in my head, mm-hmm. you know, um, I thought, uh-huh. well, uh-huh. beautiful. and a lot of people just keep it inside, you know, yeah. and, and that becomes the default, right? And so if we really want to really cultivate positive affection towards each other, we also have to do a lot of that and also a lot of appreciations. Hey, you know, like you mean a lot to me. I really appreciate you making me dinner or you setting this thing up for me or, you know, you being there in these ways for me. Um, And so part of that orientation to your partner focus on your partner and also just noticing what comes up in terms of positive thoughts is if they come into your head get them out mm. and um and you wouldn't believe how much that helps i love that craig and i'm going to add something because it's something that i've worked on since my divorce um I I used to tell my ex-husband, you know, you start and you lead with the negative. Why can't you start and lead with the positive? And and I don't even think he was aware of it, to be honest with you. And when I pointed out, because he probably had thoughts in his head that were positive, he just wasn't communicating them. So the other thing that I would add um, is when you do have negative thoughts about your partner or you want to call your partner a name or say something nasty mm-hmm. to them, stop, mm-hmm. <laughs> stop, yes. exactly. stop, count to 10, walk away for, you know, a minute, whatever, and maybe write those things down or put them in the notes on your phone, but don't say them mm-hmm. instead. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, instead, talk about this is just what i've done instead talk about what you're feeling in the moment or what got triggered in mm-hmm. the moment and make it about you rather than criticizing and putting down and being cruel to your partner um i'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. Oh my god um <laughs> yes um so spot on with this and this is something that i talk about as ownership you know, and so a lot of times I will tell my neurodiverse couples, you need to be aware of what's yours and what's not yours. Mm-hmm. And if if you don't, you're going to externalize your own battles internally onto your partner, you know. And so I think you're absolutely right. I always tell my couples, listen, if you've got an issue that you need to bring up, okay. Don't do it in that moment with the spike of emotion when you're in that, you know, maybe attacking or defensive or protective part, you know. Um, And if you do, like you said, start with a statement of empathy. And sometimes you got to do this in your head, which is um, framing the discussion in a way that says, I love you and I appreciate you. And I want to talk about this thing. Now you just opened up your partner's ears. Right. Instead of shutting them down right away. But I think also pausing there, too, also helps you identify what am I going through in this moment? What's been hard for me and what am I externalizing? And is it accurate? Is it mine or is it theirs? You know, Mm -hmm. and usually it's yours. (laughs) Right. Right. I always say, because I've learned this. Um, over the years is when I'm triggered 
it's about something that is wounded or hurt or trauma right. from childhood or yep. relationship that I haven't healed yet. Yep. And that was life saving for me okay. because um, it allowed me to have those positive feelings for my partner when when the, I thought they had done something that was personally um, challenging for me. No, it was about a trigger from the past that I hadn't healed. And it was so mm-hmm. life altering, Greg. Yeah. And I shared in my support groups too, because that one change has changed every relationship and the way I communicate in every relationship. Because my marriage, the first thing that I would do is scream when I got triggered or cry when mm-hmm. I got triggered mm-hmm. and didn't own my own issues and that created a lot of conflict and not a lot of positive feelings or feelings of appreciation and affection that's for sure absolutely right and that and then and then a lot of times you're you're triggering each other absolutely and 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 that's the worst kind of dynamic that you can have um but absolutely so i i call this healthy internalization over toxic externalization. So toxic externalization is putting my stuff, my emotions on somebody else, you know, and then demanding them to agree with me or to be on my side about that when it's not theirs, you know? Um, So there needs to be work done in, in ownership in taking care of your hurt parts and taking care of your wounds um, because nobody's going to take care of those for you or shouldn't have to take care of those for you. That's your work. And when you do more of that work, it's very also easier to speak in a way that has that ownership with I statements um, and, and also um, with some vulnerability that, again, can open up connection. Absolutely. And I know you are um, an IFS therapist, internal family systems. And I know that's the model that you use. And a lot of people may not be familiar with the term parts. Mm-hmm. And I know during our conversation, you've used that term and I love it. And I think it's really important. And I'm wondering if you could share with the listeners a little bit about kind of where that word comes from and how that is used in, you know, therapy and, and why understanding your parts and your partner's parts are so important. Oh God, they really are. Now, this is a big topic that we could get into with much more depth and also has a lot more depth to it that goes beyond IFS, but um, to understand parts, um, here's, here's a good example is, you know, I, I was a practicing artist and art professor for 25 years. And one thing I noticed is that when I went into the studio, I had to get in this certain state of energy, of mood, of openness. And was that part present during my day? No, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally a, a different part. And that part was emotional. It was raw. It was open. It was um, flexible. Um, it could go wherever I needed to. Um, and I think it's a good way of thinking about parts in that most people's anxiety for me, this is how I conceptualize it, anxiety and depression are parts work stuff. So when people have anxiety, it's because they can't be wholly okay with whatever 
they're in or whatever decision they've they've made there's another part that's either questioning it that has regrets or has fears around that and that's what creates the internal tension of anxiety a lot of times so i i want to be able to go out to the store but i'm really fearful i'm going to be overwhelmed mm -hmm. now if i was just okay with either one of those and not have them both present internally i'd be fine i wouldn't have any anxiety um, also, a lot of times we end up finding hierarchies in someone's system where one part dominates the other. Um, I'm not allowed to be mad. And when I do, my shameful part takes over and makes me super passive, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, you're guaranteed to be depressed and appropriately so, because to me, depression is actually a repression of our true selves, repression of our true potentials or our true emotions or our parts. And it's all the same thing all the same thing. So parts work also helps greatly in relationships because when I know my partner is moving into a triggered part, for instance, mm -hmm. um, I don't think of her wholly defined by that, number one. So it lets me depersonalize the situation, but it also gives me the playbook, the template, the owner's manual to what to do now, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so there are so many dynamics to parts work that really can help relationally because um, parts work internal family systems is a family systems is a relational model applied to the internal world and the relationship with yourself and your emotions. And it and what's true outside in relationships and outside your body in the real world with other people is the same as it applies internally. And I can offer a lot more examples in depth into this, um, you know, if we have time, sometime in the future. But that's kind of an overview of parts work, which is the idea that our psyche is not a unitary thing. And if we try to force it to be, we're likely to be in conflict with ourselves. And the psyche is actually a multiplicity or a plurality. Yeah. Oh, that I know, you know, you could talk about this for days, but that was a great overview for folks that aren't familiar with either internal family systems or parts work. And I think that is a great way for us to kind of wrap up this conversation. Because when we understand that our partner who is angry, or is upset, um, that's just a part of them, right? No. That's not their whole person. That's right. not who they are. It's just a part that is acting out of whatever trauma, mm -hmm. whatever hurt, whatever shame, whatever guilt feelings, whatever they have from past experiences. Yep. And so when we understand and can come from a place of love and compassion, mm -hmm. um, that is just a part of our partner and it's not all of who they are, then we can begin to understand why those things are happening, why they're communicating the way they are, why they're ignoring us, why they're emotional, and begin to have more understanding and appreciation of what they've gone through or what they're going through, and show affection in the way they can receive it, mm -hmm. and focus more on that we are a team, we are committed to each other, and together we're going to acknowledge the positives in each other and deal with the challenges with love and affection and appreciation as much as we possibly can. Nobody's perfect. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. yeah. 
I'll leave yeah. to that. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any other thoughts before we do wrap up? Any other thoughts about this topic? Well, you know, um, again, we could probably go on and on and on. I think this is a wonderful topic. I hope your audience gets just a lot out of this. Um, and as always, just I really appreciate being with you, Mom. It's always a fantastic conversation. Yeah, I feel the same way, Greg. We just bring out so many important topics and the different sides to being in mixed neurotype relationships. Mm -hmm. And I want to let folks know that Greg and I are going to be doing an amazing workshop on March 1st, and it will be um, available for sale next week. And actually this week, because this will be coming out on Tuesday, and you can go to my website. I'll put a link in the show notes. It'll be $97. And we're going to talk about all types of communication and connection in neurodiverse relationships. There's also going to be a workbook that goes with this. And there's going to be lots of wonderful bonuses. This is the first time um, that we're actually going to record a workshop that I'm doing. So if you're not able to attend live, you're going to be able to watch it in the future. So Greg and I are really excited about this workshop because we know this is an issue that a lot of couples are dealing with. So we hope that you'll register. And if you can't join us live, that you'll get the recording and you can share it you know, with your partner if they're not able to attend. And hopefully there'll be lots of opportunities for you all to practice what we're teaching so that you can improve your communication and connection in your neurodiverse relationship. So thank you, Greg. And we'll be back again. Our next topic that we're going to be addressing is um, ADHD and autistic couple dynamic because as you heard Greg said that his wife is ADHD I identify as ADHD didn't know it in my marriage mm. and I know there's probably a lot of couples who experience this dynamic so we're going to be talking about that during the next podcast so thank you Greg I look forward to our next conversation and uh, the phenomenal workshop we're going to be doing to get together absolutely super excited thank you so much Mona <laughs>